Welcome back, folks. This is the second episode of the Insatiable Content Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Rossmeyer. And dare I say, despite this being a huge bar to achieve, this is definitely the best episode yet. I'm getting this one out a little quicker than I'd imagined, so the third episode might even drop later this week, so be on the lookout for that. I just wanted to say up front, thank you to everyone who listened to the first episode and for all the tremendous feedback. Uh, some of which I will shout out later in this episode, but I really appreciate it. One thing I really want to do with the podcast is create um, an audience where there's a lot of give and take. And so thank you. I'm always appreciative for the feedback. Um, And yeah, we'll see if we can get out a third episode later this week. A lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you nots going on over here. So we'll just have to see. As part of the feedback... I'm changing the structure up here a bit going forward. There are going to be more segments, including one called Convince Me, which I'll introduce as we go through this show, but more importantly, I'm not going to review a single work in isolation anymore. Instead, I'm gonna take a recent piece of content and give my take on it while also connecting it to other works of art that I either love or don't, uh, but have at least made an impression on me. And I'm doing this in part because this podcast isn't intended to just review things but rather explore the bigger ideas behind our cultural content right now. Also, I don't want this to be the type of thing where you feel like you can't listen to it if you haven't watched what is under review. That really isn't the point of this. You can go to other places for that type of thing. And to me, since all art is in conversation with what has come before it, I think this will be more informative, especially since it means you won't, uh, as I said, have needed to watch or read what I'm talking about to get something out of the show. You also don't need to worry about spoilers here, as for the most part, I don't have interest in ruining plot twists for you, and I'll give you a heads up anytime I break from that policy um, in the future. But that is enough preamble, so now let's get into the proverbial meat and potatoes of the episode, which this week is centered on the theme, why the fuck would you want to do that? And I'll be using AMC's new five-episode miniseries, The Northwater, as a jumping-off point to explore my favorite narratives about endurance and doing things that seemingly no sane person would want to do. So let's jump into the five things I liked and didn't like. And one spoiler here, with this, it's all things I liked. So the first thing I like, I alluded to this on the last episode, but it is my man, Colin Farrell, be still my heart. That is right. I promise Colin Farrell love and Colin Farrell love there shall be. He fucking dominates this show. To sum it up succinctly, The North Water is the perfect show for all of you people who have ever wondered what it, be, what it would be like to plop down a homicidal maniac on a 19th century whaling ship that gets purposely sunk in the Arctic. Now, I'm sure only a few of you watched The Terror, another AMC show about another Arctic adventure gone bad, but basically The North Water is for all those people who thought The Terror, a show that involves a mystical creature from the North feasting on human flesh, was too tame a portrayal of what icebound exploration had to be like. Now, some might consider me an expert on this topic because, well, I did go to Iceland earlier this year and even walked on a glacier, but my innate modesty would never allow me to say something like that. But I do consider myself an expert on Colin Farrell, and to me, this is one of his best performances. Farrell plays Henry Drax, the aforementioned psychopath, and he plays him to blood-chilling perfection. I wholeheartedly recommend this show for his performance alone, which has this almost whimsical menace that somehow, in the long lineage of anti-hero TV that we've become so accustomed to, we long for him to be on the screen at all times, even though when he is, he's doing reprehensible things. So yes, 
Feral's Drax is savage and brutal, and there's a gruesome scene in which he clubs multiple seals to death. I'm sure Peter was not happy. Um, and I will never get that scene out of my brain, but he's also the living embodiment of social Darwinism. He gives no fucks about anyone but himself, in part because he believes that's the only way to survive. He has no feelings, no remorse, because how would those serve him? He's never been extended those things in his own life, and so his character domineers across every scene in this show, and it truly exhibits his range and gifts as an actor, which I'll talk a bit more about later. All right, second thing I liked, survival is insufficient. So while Farrell's homicidal tendencies in the North Water swallow up a lot of attention, see what I did there, swallow, water. Um, an underlying theme of the show, and what I most want to explore today, is the idea of human endurance and its limits. The Northwater centers around not just Drax, but also the character of Dr. Patrick Sumner, played by the simmering Jack O'Connell. Sumner is the doctor on this ill-begotten ship, and he brings with him a dark, secret past that ends up making him a target of Drax's rage. But Sumner is also a survivor. And good thing, because when the ship sinks in the middle of the fucking winter in the Arctic, we watch him do everything and anything to survive, including sleeping inside a bear he has just shot and gutted. Now, if you prefer the comforts of your posturepedic to that of a hollowed-out bear, maybe the idea of pushing your body to its limits has more appeal to me than to you. Because one of the reasons I so related to this show was that it really delved into this idea of what humans can endure. And this idea ties into two works I want to mention on this topic. The documentary, The Barkley Marathons, I think I'm saying that right, and David Graham's seminal New York piece, The White Darkness, which I'll put a link to in the episode synopsis. All right, so the Barkley doc, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. It's all about the slightly off-hinge people like myself who find the idea of running 120 miles through some of the most difficult terrain, in this case, the Tennessee backcountry, can offer the ideal we can get away. Now, I haven't done the Barkley marathon myself. Um, it seems a bit too sadistic even for me, but I highly recommend giving the documentary a watch because you get to see people uh, face true exhaustion and really confront what their limitations are. Now, there's no telling how even the best runners will respond in such circumstances, and that's part of what makes the documentary such a compelling watch. And as for The White Darkness, it's another article by David Grant, who is truly the best living nonfiction writer alive, in my opinion. Um, check out The Lost City of Z, another tale of humans pursuing their goals to the limits, and pretty much anything he's ever written. And can I just say I'll be the first person in line when Scorsese's film on Grant's new book, Killer of the Flower Moon, comes out? I mean, I cannot wait for that. Anyway, back to David Grant. He constantly pursues this idea in his work of people just haunted by these things they have to do and they can't always say why. And in The White Darkness, the article here that I'm talking about, it's about the men throughout history who have tried to travel across Antarctica on their own to reach the South Pole. Now you might be thinking, why would anyone fucking wanna do that? But when I read the article, which focuses mainly on this explorer named Henry Worsley, the man who most recently attempted this feat and died trying, mind you, my immediate thought was, hmm, that sounds like something I'd want to do. Now, what unites all these people in all these narratives is, to quote Station Eleven, another novel I love, uh, survival is insufficient, meaning that just living life isn't enough. You have to push and explore really what you're capable of. So is it somewhat odd to take a boat to the Arctic in winter, as happens on the North Water? I'd say yes. Is it questionable judgment to try to hike across Antarctica on your own? Uh, yes. 
Think of the best Sandra Bullock in one of the greatest endurance movies ever, Gravity. The point is, we can do so much more than we think we can, but that doesn't mean it's crazy. Anyone who knows me knows I have what should probably be called an addiction to running. I used to run 140 miles a week, which I've now cut back to what I deem a more reasonable 100 miles, which has given me the time to do the show. Lucky you. But part of the reason I so love running is this idea that we are capable of so much more than we think we are. One of my friends who got me into running once told me when I asked how he could possibly do 100 or 200 mile races that running was 90% software and 10% hardware. At this point, that math is a joke amongst me and my friends, but the longer I've run, the more I've come to believe he's right. It's not our bodies that hold us back, it's in endurance feats, but our minds. And to me, doing everything you can to find out what your body can handle is one of the purest expressions of life you can experience. If you're not nearly killing yourself, you're really missing out, I promise you. All right. Uh, last week I did a tangent that got a lot of positive feedback about Sheryl Sandberg. I'm gonna, this is one of the new segments. I'm gonna title the tangent for this week and just going forward, we're trying to have a civilization here because really what this is about is my gripes about people that are undermining our ability to have a functioning society. And so my side note, my tangent of the week is that as a runner, can I just say that at least in New Orleans and in the South in general, drivers are the fucking worst. Get off your fucking phone. You're endangering everyone driving around in your two-ton missile, especially when you don't understand the very basics of driving such as pedestrians having the right of way. Now, you know how many times I come back from runs angry because I've nearly been hit three to four times because some guy who thinks that even though his mental prowess is telling him that the government is trying to monitor him by giving him a life-saving vaccine, while he's also giving every bit of personal information about himself away for free on Facebook, that he has the ability to multitask behind the wheel? Call me dubious about his mental acumen. So stop being angry, bro and yelling at me for trying to utilize the public fucking right away in the way it was intended. Okay, rant over. Third thing I liked, malicious smiles. More Colin Farrell love. Look, I've given and been on the receiving end of quite a few malintentioned smiles in my life, but Colin Farrell takes the art of the malicious smile to all new levels in this show. His face has such a controlled derangement in this that even though you know he's crazy, even though you know if you met him, he'd likely harpoon you like you were a whale, you still want to watch him because that's a man who can write a novel with just an expression. And just on a quick side note, I love it any time that bad guys in any sort of film or TV shows get locked up and then somehow someone in the group thinks it's a good idea to let them out. I just always love that tension. That's always fun because you know what's gonna happen. It, you're, they're gonna go Hannibal Lecter on your ass and you know that that is coming. All right, fourth thing I liked, we'll call this section Moby Dick. Like me, you probably had to read Moby Dick in high school and have some faint recollection of it every time some jackass refers to his quest to eat five rounds of Taco Bell in a night as his white whale. Well, the North Water really put to bed the notion that whaling was anything other than brutality and getting to witness what it was like in this show was one of the unique pleasures of it. Again, maybe this is something that only appeals to me, but when else have you seen what it was like to do something as dangerous and as bloody as whaling, where they're literally carving out the whale's fat while it's sitting in the ocean? So yeah, don't watch this show over dinner. But now, while I feel there's a good chance that all the things I've mentioned so far that I really like about this show may make you, in fact, not want to watch this show, to me, the best content allows us to see and experience places and moments that we don't get to have in our normal lives. And whaling was a huge industry for a long time, and so getting to see it accurately depicted in this show should be a joy and not a curse. All right, final thing. Fifth thing I liked, manifest destiny. All right, that's right. All five things this week are things I like, as I mentioned at the top. 
And this is where I think the show ties into something epic like Cormac McCarthy's novel, Blood Meridian. Both really tackle this notion that quote unquote progress is anything but a lie we tell ourselves. Progress is always bloody and ugly. We think we're a civilizing influence, but we're just barbarous people in nicer clothes with better weapons. In Blood Meridian, that means McCarthy completely upends our notion that the settling of the West was anything other than a genocide, and American history is really built on the deaths of indigenous people and people of color that we like to ignore when we're telling the history of our nation to ourselves. See the current controversy over critical race theory being taught in our schools. In the North Water, which is set in colonialist England, which is supposedly the pinnacle of civilization in the 19th century, we see that the English and the Irish are much more savage than the indigenous Arctic people that the ship's crew encounter during their wreck. So we may like to look down on our other civilizations as beneath us, but in the end, we're lying to ourselves. And there's nothing true about manifest destiny. It's just how much blood we're willing to tolerate in our expansion to feel like we are the most elevated species out there. All right, now onto that new segment that I mentioned at the top, the convince me segment. Now, in the future, I'm really hoping this is where I will have uh, guests on who can listen to the five things I liked or didn't like and then tell me all the ways I'm wrong. But we're not quite there yet on having guests for this show. So for today, it'll just be me talking off your ear again. Okay, so this is my argument. Now that you've gotten my take on the North Water, I'm gonna do this segment and I'm gonna make a huge claim during these segments about related to the content in question and then try to convince you I'm right. Now look, my ex-wife once told me after I declared MGMT's Kids the greatest song ever to run to, that I had a lot of favorites, and she was absolutely right. But also, realize that when I say something is my favorite, I'm not necessarily saying it's the absolute best. Rather, what I'm saying is that with this superlative, for my taste at least, this thing is perfect. Like to me, if you ever visit New Orleans, I highly recommend Ancora Pizzeria. It's my favorite restaurant and some of the best pizza I've had outside of Naples. But you don't always see it on the best of restaurant lists for NOLA. Part of that is because I have much, much better taste than other people because sometimes what's voted best is flashy and I tend to prefer quality over style. So all that being said, let's get to the superlative. Today's claim, Colin Farrell is the most underrated actor alive right now. Look, the man can do anything, and unlike other actors like George Clooney or Ryan Reynolds, who are both immensely talented, watching Farrell, you can forget you're watching Farrell. He becomes the character he plays. He inhabits them in a way that only the best actors can. So while you never forget you're watching George Clooney, movie star, no matter what he looks like or is doing when he's on the screen, with Farrell, you can get lost in the performance, even though he also has that transcendent movie star quality. Additionally, Farrell takes much riskier and more interesting roles than so many other actors. For the most part, with the exception of the fact that he's apparently playing the Penguin next year in a soon-to-be-released version of Batman, I mean, how many more versions do we need? He isn't out here doing the Marvel superhero bullshit just to get paid that you see so many talented actors and directors doing these days. And when he does take on one of those roles, like he did in Fantastic Beasts, he makes the role fascinating and complex. So yeah, I can only assume he's gonna be an incredible penguin and I will probably end up seeing it despite hating myself for doing so. But if you look at his IMDB page, 
and it, it's one unique role after another. He's perhaps best known for his personal life and some of the addiction issues he had earlier in his career, but he's been in some great movies that were great in large part because of him. I'm thinking of last year's Triumph, The Gentleman, which I highly recommend, even though I feel too few people have seen it. I mean, he plays a terrifying but exhilarating badass opposite Matthew McConaughey, who is a mass market pot dealer and pot grower. I mean, just based on that description alone, why would you not want to see this movie? These men were made for these parts. But while I also love Farrell in, in, in Bruges, Widows, and an otherwise unwatchable season of True Detective, part of the reason I'll argue he's so good is his performance in one of my top five movies of the 20th century, The Lobster. Look, if you haven't seen it, you're depriving yourself of one of the weirdest, most thought-provoking movies of the past decade. It's about a society a lot like ours, except for the fact that if you don't fall in love by a set time, you turn into an animal of your choosing. Hence the film's title. It's a film from Yorgos Lanamos, I have no idea if I said that right or not, who also directed the phenomenal The Favorite. Farrell's portrayal of the everyman David in the movie is so restrained, so nuanced, that it's easy to overlook the tremendous amount of work he is doing. He is so consistently funny and unpredictable and plays the unexpected plot turns perfectly. Now, a bit of a spoiler here, but by the time you're at the end of the movie, where he seemingly found love with a woman played by Rachel Weisz, we watch as he faces an incredible moral dilemma that ultimately should make us, the audience, question our very notions of love. The ending is one of the best open-ended questions about love I've ever seen in any art form. Essentially, Farrell has to make the decision about whether he loves Rachel Weisz's character enough to blind himself. They profess to each other that their love is unconditional, and she is blind, and she wants him to join in, him in this so that they truly can share the same experiences. And if he doesn't go through with it, well, then are they really in love? Is their love truly unconditional? Don't we always say love is unconditional? If we do anything for it, blah, blah, blah. Well, here's where you got to decide whether to put your nuts in the grinder and live by that edict or not. So what does he decide? We don't know. We're left to speculate with an ambiguity like that at the end of The Graduate. But if he doesn't go through with his self-blinding, are we saying he's essentially meatloaf, willing to do anything for love, but not that? And if he won't, and if we won't do these things for the people we say we love, what do these limits tell us about what we consider to be love in the first place? So these are the questions I think about people. Maybe you're, well, not surprised that I'm divorced, which I would just say in response to quote one of the greatest poets of all time, one Kanye West, you can kiss my whole ass. More specifically, you can kiss my ass whole. Okay, anyway, so I hope I've convinced you to watch anything Colin Farrell's in, including both The North Water and The Lobster. But if I haven't, I'm gonna end the show with two quick hits. My friends often ask me for recs on things to watch, and so thanks to my good friend Ron G's urging, we're out here on these streets, Ron. I'm going to do two things I liked from this week, and then one thing that pooped the bed. To explain briefly, back in college, two friends who all allowed to remain anonymous came and visited me and my roommates during finals at UVA. Both went to a class we were in, took the final even though they were not students at UVA, and this final was supposed to last two to three hours, and after about 15 minutes, minutes, they acted like they had finished the exam. They turned in their test, and then one of them yelled, Zelikow poops the bed, before dramatically exiting the classroom. Now, Zelikow was the professor of the class, and I'm sure he was quite shocked by this suggestion. Anyway, I told this story to my daughters this week, don't get at me, social services, and they found it hilarious, so hence, including the segment name here. I promise to never have to tell that story again. All right, so 
what pooped the bed for me this week before getting into two things I recommend was LeBron's version of Space Jam. Now, I know I'm a little late on this, but let's be serious. It was utter shit. And I say this as someone who really likes LeBron, the basketball player, and respects a lot of the work he does and has done off the court. But the movie movie is pure LeBron propaganda mixed in with egregious Warner Brothers product placement. I wouldn't even call it a movie. It's a very, very, very long commercial. Now to the two things I like. Uh, first category on this is trust the process, which no is not an allusion to the 76ers. I will consider trust the process related to the 76ers when Ben Simmons actually develops a reliable jump shot. I'm reclaiming that expression. Uh, it's something we say a lot down here in New Orleans among my friend group, uh, especially at the wonderful Parlo Brewery, which is run by my good friend Eric and has the best beer in Louisiana, hands down. So the trust the process category for this week. Now look, I've watched this multiple times during COVID, but if you haven't seen the delightful Palm Springs, it's a great, funny watch. It updates Groundhog's Day and features Andy Sandberg, or as I like to call him, Mr. Joanna Newsom. Highly recommend, great weekend watch. Second segment is the sink into the couch segment. You're saying you might have imbibed some substances, you're exhausted from your kids, you're unwinding at the end of the day, and you're sitting on your couch and you wanna feel slightly more trippy than you always do. So what I would recommend, watch Starfuckers, that's S-T-R-F-K-R, for those of you who don't like middle-aged dad indie rock, watch their video for their song, Open Your Eyes. It's not only a great song, but the video is incredibly otherworldly. It features a broke-ass Olympics with an alien. Do I really need to say more? All right, so that is all I got for this episode, but I'm hoping to get one more pot out this week that will focus on the Up series, my favorite documentary series ever. Told you, I do a lot of superlatives. And the theme of the elusive and misleading nature of memory and art. Until then, keep pushing yourself to the fucking limits. Have a great week.